First of all, I would like to welcome you to our gathering this Sunday morning. It is always a blessing and a source of encouragement to be able to sing together, partake of communion together, and uh, hear God's word as we purpose in our hearts to come together, read scripture, and uh, study God's word. And there's always a source of encouragement. And as you know, uh, um, we have been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, but particularly we have been making our way through the Beatitudes. And these are Christ's opening statements. And this is recorded for us in the book of Matthew, chapter 5 through chapter 7. Now, the Beatitudes are pronouncements of blessings, and these serve as an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And as you know, this is not Christ's first sermon, as I've said before, but the Sermon on the Mount is a record of Christ's entire sermon. Now, these were made by Christ, and this morning I would like to give you a review of what we covered thus far so that you will be able to follow along with me. So if you would be kind enough to uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we will read verses 1 through 8 together. Matthew 5, we'll start in verse 1 and work our way down. I'll be reading out of the ESV. It should be in your notes as well, I believe. And it says as follows, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, speaking of Christ. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I'll stop there. So allow me to rephrase what Christ has told us in his official declaration I'll paraphrase. Christ has told us that happy are the spiritual beggars. Happy are the spiritually indigent. Happy are the spiritually bankrupt. Now, I know you're asking yourself, if you haven't been with us, who are these people? Who are the indigent, spiritual indigent? Who are the spiritual beggars? Who are the spiritually bankrupt? Well, allow me to suggest to you that the spiritual beggar, the spiritual bankrupt person is the man or the woman who recognizes their total inability to save themselves. And it is precisely this person who is happy for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And this is such good news. Are you with me this morning? This is good news. And allow me to tell you why this is good news. This is good news because the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. And this is not based on our own performance. It's not based on our own merits. That is good news. You see, we will never measure up. And Christ said, highly favored are those who mourn. Highly favored are those who have sorrow. Highly favored are those who are mourning. And the question we must ask is, what are they mourning over? Is it a a, a sad person? They're happy just because they're sad? Or are they favored? Are they blessed just because they are uh, constantly in sorrow? But if we look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we understand that these men and women are mourning over their personal sin against a thrice holy God. And I would suggest to you that it is only kingdom citizens 
It is only those men and women that belong to Christ's kingdom who truly possess sorrow of the heart. Now, this sorrow of the heart looks like this. You see, the sorrow that the hypocrites possess is one that puts on a fake smile or they disfigure their faces. In this same sermon, Christ addresses that. They shed many tears. They might say the right things, but they feel absolutely nothing because their heart is removed. Now, as we look at the totality of Scripture, we find that as Christians, it doesn't just end with feeling sorry or, or sorrow or being discouraged over our sin, which could be true. But as Christians, we have to fight against our sin and we have to put our sin to death continually. And that could be a long, lengthy process. It never ends. Not till we're glorified. Jesus further said that fortunate are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? I, I know this is a review. Well, it means to be gentle. It means to be humble. It means to be mild. And then he adds that <clears throat> fortunate are they, for they shall inherit the earth. Now think about this for a moment. That these gentle, humble, and meek men and women will inherit the earth without promoting themselves. They will inherit the earth without fighting for their own desires. They will inherit the earth without fighting for their or making their demands known, without yielding swords or weapons of mass destructions or riding in with military tanks or white horses or whatever you might think is worthy of writing in with glory and splendor. They will inherit the earth by being gentle, by being mild, by being humble. And that is contrary to the way that we think. Jesus further said that worthy of all envy are those who desire righteousness, those men and women who desire godliness, those men and women who long after holiness. They love the things that God loves and they desire it like food and water. They desire it, and they have great necessity of righteousness. And we understand that Jesus said that it is they who will be satisfied because righteousness never disappoints. Saints, I'm here to remind you that it is only kingdom citizen, citizens who will desire righteousness, even when righteousness is unpopular, even when righteousness is out of fashion, when righteousness leads to persecution, when righteousness leads to suffering, Vilification, again, this is only true of kingdom citizens, and they understand, these men and women understand that righteousness will satisfy. And I know that from verses 3 to 6, as you have them before you, Christ is describing what a kingdom citizen looks like. He's giving us a profile. He's describing for us what they look like, their makeup. But now in verse 7, Christ kind of pivots a bit, and he starts describing for us what a Christian does. He describes a Christian duty, the Christian responsibility, the Christian behavior, which results of truly belonging to him. And what we learned the last time that we gathered together, going through the Sermon on the Mount, is that a Christian is merciful. I'll say that again. A Christian is merciful, and they are merciful because they themselves have been the recipients of mercy. Now this morning we're going to focus on the following beatitude. 
And it is contained in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And if you would read along with me, Matthew 5, verse 8 says the following. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that this morning you would encourage us, that your Holy Spirit would expose things in our hearts. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us humility, Father, to receive the imparted word with all humility. I pray, Father, that rather than put it, that come up with excuses to, to justify the way we are, that we would humbly bow the knee before your throne in desperate need of your help. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read it again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I trust that a lot of us might remember this. Last year, give or take, at the heights of the pandemic, there was a shortage of many items. Do you remember? Yes, no, maybe so. There were some store shelves that were empty, and then many things were lacking. And I trust, uh, rather, this, the lack of certain things, sent many Americans on a frenzy, myself included. Now, among some of these items that were in short, shortage, or there was a shortage of these items, one of them was antibacterial gel. Do you remember? Everywhere you looked, they were out. There was no hand sanitizer. Very difficult for you to find some. Now, I would say that suddenly, because of this new health threat, there now came a desire to maintain sterile hands. Sanitizer dispensers were mounted almost everywhere. And in many places, they still remain. Now, if you take a step further, you know this to be true. Some establishment or services, they won't serve you. They won't uh, seat you. They won't treat you unless your hands have been sanitized, your temperature has been checked, or you're donning a mask. Would you agree with me? This is pretty normal now. And I trust that as I speak of hand sanitizer, some of you might have some in your bags right now. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a hand sanitizer or sanitizing gel in your, in your bag or following health guidelines or, uh, or doing whatever it takes to maintain clean hands. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to consider the following, that this is very similar to what we find in religious dogmas around the world. You see, false religions around the world act in the same way. They require a certain dress code. They prescribe a specific clothing. They might require a clothing change before you worship. They might even require you to wash your hands and your face or your feet before you enter a place of worship to be accepted. You see, false religion prescribes prayer postures, the bowing, the kneeling, possibly on certain items, carpets, mats, facing a particular direction, at, at, at specified times, at dawn, early morning, midday, afternoon, evening, and night. You see, false religion, and now secularism, I would add, or the science, says that you must have clean hands to be accepted into society, to be welcome, to be part of the group. Now listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So Jesus said that those who have a pure heart will be welcome. Those who have a pure heart 
will be in the presence of God unhindered, unrestricted. And this is not based on an external cleanliness, but on internal purity. Now, I trust that as Jesus said or made the statement, this possibly shocked his immediate audience. For how could one possibly clean such a vital internal organ? How could these blue-collar men, these rugged, tough fishermen, farmers, shepherds, tradesmen, mothers, children, fathers, how could they remove the heart and cleanse it from within? What would one use to scrub the heart? What kind of solvent, what kind of salve, what kind of soap? Or maybe let me bring it down to our current vernacular. What essential oil would purify the heart? Let's read it again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What did Christ mean by purity of heart? Well, let me give you some good news. And I should hear a sigh of relief after this. Christ did not mean sinless perfection. It's okay, you can sigh of relief. And we know this to be true because the Beatitudes begin with those that are bankrupt, those that are unable to save themselves, and it is followed by those that are mourning over their sin. So it cannot mean those that are achieved sinless perfection, and you and I are proof of that. We will never achieve sinless perfection. Can I hear an amen? You're in doubt. You never will. So what did he mean by purity of heart? You see, the Greek word in the text is the same as the English word. It means heart. But we need to understand that thus far, Christ is not speaking of externals, but he's speaking of internal realities. So therefore, when Jesus says heart, he's not referring to that vital organ that pumps blood. But he is describing, listen carefully, the place where your intentions, your purpose, your inner self, your innermost desires reside. Think about that for a moment. Where your intentions, where your purpose, your inner self, your innermost desires reside. That's what he's talking about. And with such statement, Christ, in a sense, is performing open heart surgery, if you will. And he's entering in a very deep and very dark place the place where that really defines who we truly are. He's entering the place where our emotions live. That place that might be known to us, yet fully known to God. Amen? The heart is the emotions, and this is a Greek idea. Now, for the Jews, it's a little different. <clears throat> the Jewish mind, they, rather than the heart, they focus all their attention or their feelings in their stomach. For the gut or the stomach is the seat of the unconscious mind where one's instincts reside. So the next time you read in the Old Testament the word heart, actually you might be reading the Hebrew word bowels, inward parts, stomach, and in some cases even the word liver. <clears throat> so as I was studying this, I did a little research of on the effects of stress on the stomach. Some of these might be familiar to most of us. You know, when you're stressed, you might feel pain in your stomach, bloating, nausea, and other stomach discomforts. Vomiting may occur if stress is severe enough. And furthermore, stress may cause an unnecessary increase or decrease in appetite. And you know this to be true. 
When you're angry, you lose your appetite. Don't nod. But I know this is true. Right? When you're stressed, you might get that vomiting sensation. When you're mad, your stomach churns. And if you're a man, if you're anything like me, you're always hungry. Say amen to that. But the psalmist wrote in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. The Hebrew word is, your law is within my bowels. The depths of who I am. So for the Jews, it was a stomach. For the Greek, it was a heart. And we use a, and we use a combination of both. You see, um, how many times have you said, I had a gut feeling about this? Or if you're sending a text, you send a little heart, I heart you. And with that, we're communicating that we have much appreciation or feelings or emotions towards someone else. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. If you're following along in your outline, just take a look at it. Point number one, purity of heart is purity of emotions. Purity of heart is purity of emotions. Again, that Greek word for purity might also be said to be clean, to be pure, maybe even purified by fire. In a Levitical sense, it means not forbidden or imparting no uncleanness, ritually clean, ethically. It means free from corrupt desires, free from every falsehood. I like that one. <clears throat> Innocent, unstained, sincere. It could also mean pure in the eyes of God, acceptable in his sight. That's what that word means. So when Christ uses his word, he's explaining the reality that the heart, our emotions, our feelings, our innermost desires, our wants, our longings, our cravings need to be pure. They need to be clean. They need to be chaste. They need to be undefiled. Now, I would suggest to you, since the Beatitudes seem to be building on top of each other, that this is only possible for those who are mourning over their personal sin against a thrice holy God and they see his holiness. For when we see God in his holiness, we will realize that we have wicked hearts. Amen? That we have wicked desires. That we have selfish ambition. That we have impure feelings. <clears throat> and it is they that are mourning over their sin and complete poverty of spirit that are extending a weak, feeble, dirty, trembling, trembling, stained, and he had this one, unsanitized, infected hand to the heavens, crying out for mercy. Does that describe who you are? Begging and pleading for a pure heart. It is only those who acknowledge having an impure heart who, uh, who will further acknowledge their need of having or needing a pure heart. And this is true <clears throat> of kingdom citizens. Now, I know that many people around the world and many of us may, might be tempted to try to fix ourselves on our own. And this is when religion comes in. You see, religious systems will prescribe rules. They'll prescribe traditions. They'll prescribe works, penance, offerings, sacrifices, pilgrimages to be accepted, to make the person clean, to make the person pure, to make the person separate, 
so that you could earn your place into heaven or so that you could save yourself. <clears throat> but all religions will fail because salvation rests solely on the practitioner of the religion, on individual performance, on individual accomplishments, on your own merit, on your own productivity. And let me add to this, that this so-called cleansing that is provided by religion is only on the surface. Would you agree with me? It's only on the surface, on the outside, for it is only able to clean the outer, only able to modify the outer. <clears throat> Let me give you an example that I think might help you understand this a little bit better. My beloved bride frequently tasked my girls with cleaning the house. And I love it, watching my girls clean the house. One less thing that I have to do. I'm selfish. Now, she's been diligent in tasking them and teaching them and training them what it means to clean the kitchen. But for you and I, for you and I, us mortals, average, simple people, cleaning the kitchen is just cleaning the kitchen. But not for my daughters. They, knew, they know the true definition of what it means to clean the kitchen. You know what it is for them? They know that they have to wash the dishes. They need to wipe the counters. They need to wipe and arrange the cabinets. They need to wipe all the appliances. They need to sweep. They need to mop. They need to wash the baseboards. They need to put the dishes away. They need to take out the trash. They need to vacuum the house. They need to steam clean the carpets. They need to change the light bulb. They need to paint the kitchen. They need to pull out the weeds. They need to wash the cars and yes, even change the oil. Okay, I, I'm joking about changing the light bulbs. <clears throat> but if my kids simply clean the kitchen and wipe down the counter and arrange a few dishes, they are almost 100% effective in deceiving their dad. I'm a simple guy. I walk in and the kitchen looks great, but it is not so with mom. You see, she's been gifted with bionic x-ray vision, <laughs> seen through walls. You see, she's able to see deep inside the cracks where no human eye is able to see. She's able to spot streaks that are not even visible to the naked eye. She could see crumbs from a mile away. She could see the crumbs in the carpet, in the corner, as she's pulling in the driveway. <laughs> And such is true with religion. You see, religion is only able to clean on the outside, on the surface. Religion is unable to clean hands. It is only able to clean your hands momentarily, maybe change your dress, behavior modification, but it is completely unable to change and clean the heart, change your feelings, your desires, your thoughts, your mind. Religion will always fall short. Can I hear an amen to that? Sterilization of hands, straight path, clean speech doesn't always transfer to the heart. It never will. But the contrary is true. When you have a pure heart, it will reflect in having pure actions, pure intentions, pure behavior, pure speech, pure emotions, godly living. And this is what Jesus is addressing in this beatitude. You see, Jesus made an indictment. He presented charges to the religious elite of his day. It's on your notes, Matthew 23, verse 25. 
He gave him woes or pronouncement of judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous for, to others, but within you are full of a hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, this problem has always been around. Man has always been on a quest to clean the outer. And currently, on a social level, I have to add this, that many are on a quest to try to sanitize or clean the ugliness of our history. You heard about it, I'm sure. They seek to omit any evidences of evil in our past history. They desire to revise history to not offend anyone. Now, I would have to say that sadly, this is even bleeding into the church. For there are many who are tempted not to offend anyone with scriptural truth. There are many who want to find, who find offense in the gospel and, and, and believe it's too rigid, too old school, that it needs to be revised. And many are then drawn to an alternative gospel, a clean gospel, a sanitized version of the gospel, a gospel that is not too messy, not too bloody, not too violent, not too graphic. A gospel that requires nothing in return. A consumer gospel that is easy to digest. A gospel that will never confront our sin. A gospel light, if you will. Only focusing on grace, only mercy, only kindness, only forbearance, requiring nothing in return. And saints, that is exactly what we do not need. But we need the gospel in its entirety. Can I hear an amen to that truth? Amen. That's why personally... I enjoy congregational singing of hymns when we come together. You see, hymns have a way of reminding us of our falling sinful condition, set to song, set to lyrics, set to melody and time. Hymns have a way of reminding us how God's wrath was poured out against his son, the scourging, the, crush, the crushing, the punishment of his son for our sins. Hymns have a way of reminding us how his son willfully and willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father and he shed his blood and he died a criminal's death. And this is a reminder of a bloody transaction that took place on our behalf. Hymns have a way of transcending our thinking to a time to come, to eternity future, where we, we the redeemed will proclaim the goodness of God, will sing about his grace, worshiping the Father for the work of the Son. And this is such a great reminder when we come together. Now, humanly speaking, I get it. Who wants to talk about blood, death, sacrifice, punishment, wrath? I get it. It's not glamorous. It's uncomfortable. It's not attractive. It's bloody. It's violent. It's messy. If it were up to us, we would only want to focus, like I said earlier, his love and his grace. But for us who believe, for us kingdom citizens... We know that it is only that bloody yet accurate description of the gospel that in return will produce clean and pure hearts. 
You see, saints, God hates sins to such a degree that he crushed his own son. I'll say that again. God hates sin to such a degree that he crushed his precious son. And that is why Paul reminded the Corinthian assembly who were enamored, who loved the oratory, the wisdom, the, the polished public speaking debate and argument. And he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he also told the Colossians that we were reconciled to Christ and to God by the blood of his cross. So now as I say that, if pure hearts is having pure emotions, I know you're sitting there asking, well, that's almost impossible. Will I ever have an opportunity to be mad or be angry? Uh, can, can I ever hate? What do you say to this, Danny? Well, the answer is found for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, if you want to write this down, where Paul acknowledges that we as sinful and as men and women, we will be angry at times, but even that emotion of anger, that feeling of anger has to be viewed through the biblical lens. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So is there room for indignation? The answer is yes, if it's godly. However, we all need to assess through a biblical lens. But keep in mind that Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. If you're still following along with me, point number two, purity of heart is having an undivided heart. Purity of heart is having an undivided heart. I want you to consider the following that Jesus did not say, blessed are the, uh, he did not say blessed are those that have pure theology, pure doctrine, or even pure worship, which are all great things to have. But he said, blessed are those who have a pure, or blessed are those who have an undivided heart. Saints, the reality of you and I is this, that we are prone to compartmentalize our hearts. We are so prone to create secret vaults, to have hidden pockets within, to have secret places where we hide our most valued and cherished possessions area in our hearts where that we keep out of others reach a safe if you will and we are the only ones that know the combination of that safe we're all prone to have that in our hearts but this morning christ is exposing that area as most of you guys know my wife and i prior to covid uh we would like to travel outside of the country found much joy just traveling going different places and one of the things that my bride saw that I needed was because I would frequently walk with my phone, keys, wallets in my hand. And she says, you need a, a fanny pack. But I told her I will never do such a thing. So she bought me a money belt. But allow me to explain, there is a difference. <laughs> it's slim. It's, you can't carry a lot of things in there. And it goes inside your pants. And I found much success with this travel, traveling 
not fanny pack, but money belt. There's a difference. And in such money belt, I could put my passport, her passport, a credit card, some cash, and it goes undetected. And now I found much success where I was able to walk down busy streets with free hands, not a care in the world that a pickpocketer is going to come and take my valued possessions because they are safe. It's not a fanny pack. It is a money belt, and it is safe. I could wear shorts, T-shirt, tank top, and it goes undetected. It really, it really does go undetected. It really does. Now, sadly, just like that money belt, the, the, the same is true with a divided heart. Now, I say, they, say this with much care, love, and humility. There's sadly many who have a divided heart. And there might be many in this room out here right now underneath this tent who have a divided heart. They have a, a divided heart where they conceal and are currently concealing their sin. Concealing, hiding secret lifestyles, sinful desires, impure emotions, hiding their pride, their arrogance, sinful expectations of others, personal idols. So I would encourage you this morning, allow Christ's statements, blessed are the pure in heart, to be the catalyst that you use to examine your very own heart. You see, it is in that secret pocket in our heart that secret vault, that divided chamber where some of us might store memories of our past lawlessness and rejoice on who we once were. It is in those secret areas in our heart where we allow our thoughts to run free and run wild, where we relive lawlessness of who we were, secretly finding pleasure in the sin that we were engaged in. It is in this dim, lit, restricted area in the heart where wicked desires, anger, bitterness, frustration, fester and build up. It is in this secret divided heart, secret vault, where we allow roots of bitterness to, to take form, to remain. And take it a step further. It is in, in those areas where the married is dreams of being single again possibly contemplating a divorce, infidelity, immorality, and the singles in that secret vault, lusting over other people, craving and desiring other things. Saints, allow me to tell you with much humility, it is in this compartment where those secret desires are just brewing and waiting and waging war against who we are, against ourselves. Many times, in our thoughts, wanting to run away and disappear to a foreign land where no one knows who we are, running after that paradise. Christian, I say this with much humility, with much love. That is a lie. It's a lie because Christ knows who you are. Can I hear an amen to that? You see, Jonah was confronted with the same heart. Jonah was given a command from God, and he wrote, he went the opposite direction of where God told him to go. Go to Nineveh? No, I'm going to go to Spain, the polar opposite. And I'm going to go to a place where no one knows who I am. And guess what? 
Jonah was found in the belly of a fish. The same heart was present in Onesimus. You remember him? Onesimus, the runaway slave who defrauded his master. He ran 1,600 miles away to Rome and he was found in a prison cell by God. But saints, it is in those deep areas, those secret pockets where we store our idols. We store, we hide our sinful practices. And sadly, there are many within the church that are living in such an impure way, deceiving self and deceiving others. And for this, we must repent. You know, as you're hearing all this weightiness of the heart, I trust that you're asking, how do I know if I have a divided heart, Danny? What do I do? Ask yourself the following. When you feel that you have been mistreated, misunderstood, when you're anxious, when you're discouraged, when you have been betrayed, where do your thoughts run to? What's tugging at your heart? Now, externally, we're probably good at identifying these things. Internally, we might run to food, run to the fridge, you run to alcohol, drugs, sex, smartphone, pornography, or whatever vice or whatever sin is tugging at your heart. For this, you ought to repent as well. But where does your mind go to first? Allow me to remind you that you are not alone. For at one point or another, we have all, let me back up. At one point, point or another, we have all been tempted to have a divided heart. Tempted to have a compartment in our heart where we store our cherished morsels, those sins that we cherish, those morsels that will sustain us when Christ is unable to sustain us. You see, though, we might know the truth of Scripture. In defiance, we refuse to surrender. We, def we refuse to expose what's inside our hidden vault. We refuse to confess our sin to one another. We fight to keep it hidden. We fight to keep it alive. But there is much danger in having hidden vaults in your heart. There is danger in having a divided heart, saints. There is danger in having double affection, double vision. For we're looking at Christ and we're looking at our sin of choice. And we love Christ, yet we also love our sin. You have ever been there? You don't have to answer out loud. But if you're anything like me, I know you've been there more than once. And it is in those moments when we arrive to that intersection, when we see who God is, but we also see our choice sin, that we become ever so confused, that we lack clarity. We start being led by our impulses. We are being led by our feelings because we have a divided heart. We're led by desires rather than by scriptural truth. We have one eye focused on Christ and we have the other eye focused on our sin. We have one eye focused on the cross and we have the other eye focused on the satisfaction that our sin will produce. We have blurred vision. We have a double vision. We have divided feelings. We have a divided chamber in our hearts. And that is dangerous. And you know that when we give in to sin at that moment, again, when we give in to our sin at that moment, our sin becomes far greater than Christ. We focus our eyes on the immediate satisfaction of our sin and we look away from Christ. This is because we have a divided heart. Genesis 19, we get, have a great example of what a divided heart looks like. You heard a lot 
refer to Lot, right? Lot had a wife. They were comfortable living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities have gone, have gone down in history as sinful, disobedient, driven by unclean desires, and ruled by their lust, ruled by their passion, having no moral gauge, no moral compass. And they were directed by God to flee. However, she loved the idea of living in Sodom and Gomorrah. She longed for it. And although she had witnessed firsthand God's disapproval, his wrath, God's immediate judicial judgment on these cities for fire was coming, raining down on them in her heart, she still wanted to remain. Now, I want you to consider the following, though. Though externally, Lot's wife fled with her husband. I would add that internally she remained attached to those cities. She had deep roots. She had deep sentiments in her heart. She had these emotions. She wanted to stay behind. She was possibly bitter. She was probably possibly resenting her husband's lead. She was mourning, having to leave the comforts of Sodom and Gomorrah. She had a divided heart. And this was reflected, or this was evidenced by her looking back to those cities that she longed for. And for this, she was judged. You see, a divided heart honors with the lips, says the right things, but the heart is removed. How does that apply to us? See, on Sunday morning, we would gather and sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And as soon as we hit the parking lot, we're grumbling and complaining. We could sing, all I have is Christ. Yet, when we're all alone, Christ is not enough. Jesus said Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Saints, the greatest problem we have right now is our heart. Amen? Our greatest problem we have is our heart. You see, sinful men in ignorance, in ignorance seek to find the perfect environment and they, they conclude that it is the environment that causes us to respond a certain way. They seek to rid men of any accountability. They point the blame on the environment, their past upbringing rather than on the person and I'm here to remind you that perfect environments are not the solution. Sanitized habitats, proper education, ample opportunities, the redistribution of wealth is not the solution. Furthermore, more laws, more policies, more decrees, more executive orders. Furthermore, more religious rites, religious traditions, religious ceremonies will not fix the human heart. And I'll even add this, having everything you want, everything you desire will not fix the human heart. It won't. It will not. You see, Adam and Eve lived in paradise. Have you thought about that for a moment? They had wealth beyond measure. They had provision in excess. They had no struggle to find food for there was abundance of food in this garden. They had no need for clothing for scripture teaches that they were naked and unashamed. They had no neighbors to deal with. Imagine that. <laughs> they had no struggle with work because remember Adam was working before the fall and the land was producing, it was yielding fruit. They didn't struggle with a boss. They didn't struggle with co-workers, for there was no sin. Think about this, saints. 
They never had to experience Southern California traffic. They had no oppressive government to submit to for they were under a under God's rule. They had no oppressive laws because God governed them lovingly. They had no rich to oppress them. They had no crime-ridden areas. They were in perfection, yet they fell. You see, at that moment, when they were confronted with the temptation of obeying God or pursuing knowledge, at that moment in their hearts, in that secret pocket in their heart, God was not enough. In that secret compartment, they bowed the knee to the altar of the knowledge of good and evil, and they conceded. See, knowledge of good and evil looked far greater than God's goodness. They had double vision. They had a divided heart. The problem was their heart, and so it is with you and I. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I'm going to say this with scriptural authority. Your current circumstances are not the problem. Can I hear an amen? amen? Your current circumstances are not the problem. Let me clarify. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. Kids, it's not your parents. Parents, it's not your children. Let me add to this list. It's not your president. It's not your governor. Okay, maybe it is. No, it's not your governor. It's not the mayor. It's not the police. It's not your boss. It's not your coworker. It's not your neighbor. It's our heart. That is why Moses charged the nation of Israel Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And if you're joining us midweek, James teaches us that there's a lot of instability with a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. And Jesus taught in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and whatever your sin of choice may be. And I know you're asking questions this morning. How can I tell Danny if I have a divided heart? Let me help you out. When you're constantly seeking your own, you might have a divided heart. When When you're demanding your own, when you're seeking your own recognition, when you're seeking your own glory, when you're seeking your own praise, when you're seeking your own pleasure, your own comforts, it is then at that moment that we desperately need him to intervene. We need to cry out for him to give us a new heart, to give from, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, to a heart that doesn't feel anything, to a heart that is tender, from, from a heart that is dead to a heart that has been given life from a heart that is divided, that has secret compartments, to a heart that has unity, oneness, and singularity. And that is why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 86, verse 11, I love this. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Our heart's divided. Our heart needs to be united in who God is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Point number three. A pure heart is required to see God. A pure heart is required to see God. 
saints, there's no way around it. <clears throat> Purity and singularity and oneness of heart, undivided devotion and commitment to God is required to see him. Look at that verse again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God will become visible. God will become visible, but allow me to add this. As we're looking at this beatitude, I would say that when we are clear with who God is, when we live life with the clarity, with, with clarity in the gospel, God becomes visible everywhere. Amen? Would you agree with me or no? Yes. When we have clarity on who God is, God is evident. He's visible everywhere. We see him in our personal lives. We see the evidences of his grace in our marriage, in our parenting, in our church family. We see him in Menifee. Yes, we even see him in Menifee. We see him in the U.S. We see him abroad. And when trials come, because they will come, when we have clarity in who God is, we rejoice for he's purposing these trials for our good. But on the contrary, when our heart is divided, <clears throat> when we lack clarity of who God is, when we lack clarity in his word, when we lack clarity of the gospel, we revert and we focus on anything other than God. And this is dangerous because then at that moment we start to deny God's working, God's working in our personal lives, God working in our marriage, God working in our kids, in our parenting, God working in the church, God, God working in Menifee, God, the Lord working in our lives. And when trials come, rather than rejoicing, we complain, we pout, we grumble, we stomp our feet, we feel that we have been wronged by God. Yet God... The God-man, Jesus Christ, said the following, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, though we might see God here and now, when we have clarity in, with, in Scripture, clarity in the Gospel, clarity in who God is, this beatitude is talking of a time to come. It's referring to a time to come, a time when we will see Him clearly. And I rejoice over that truth. But look at the following, saints. God requires all of our heart. He requires all of our heart. And I'm able to say this with scriptural authority that no one with a divided heart, no one with impure hearts, no one with impure feelings, no one with impure emotions, no one with secret vaults, unrepentant sin will sneak into the holy throne room of God. No one with a secret pocket, with a secret vault in their heart, with impure thoughts, with impure motives, with impure feelings, emotions, desires, secret sins, or lifestyles will make their way into the throne room of God undetected. It will not happen. Do you guys remember my illustration that money belt, not fanny pack? You remember that? Well, I found much success with that belt traveling in Mexico, South America. However, I, on one of my, our trips, we, we were flying back, and I forgot I had it because it's so comfortable. It's not like a fanny pack. It's way comfortable. And as I'm walking, we landed uh, to New York, LaGuardia uh, Airport, to be exact. I forgot all about my money belt. And I'm walking in the line, and... I'm sure we're excited. We made it home. And as soon as I passed their little x-ray detector, it started going off. 
immediately I was surrounded and I was removed from the line. And, <laughs> and they said, what do you have on you? And I'm searching, I'm t- tugging on my pocket, you know, squeezing my pocket. And I, I didn't have anything. And then I remember that I had my money belt. And I removed it. And I wasn't free to leave. My access was restricted. Not until everything from that secret money belt was exposed and inspected. And I say this because it is the same with God. Psalm 1 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me wrap this up, saints. So how do we respond to this beatitude? How do we respond to the purity of heart? Let me give you some things that might help. For starters, we admit our poverty of spirit. Amen? Secondly, we agree with God that our heart is deceitful above all else. Jeremiah 17. We respond, we cry out to God for him to search us. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We respond in obedience. We run to him, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We run to the word of God. Earlier today, in our scripture reading, Daniel read for us Psalm 119, verses 9 through 6. And I'm going to read that again, because the answer for, to, this, to this question is found there. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding, according, by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sit against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare the rules of your mouth. In the ways of your testimonies, I delight as such as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Saints, we run to his word. And in these verses that I just read, the answer is found in God's word. We have to go to his word, to his commandments, his statutes, his rules, his testimonies, his precepts. Saints, we desperately need his word. We need to respond positively to his word. And in doing so, in doing so, he will work in our hearts. Our hearts will be purified. And then you and I could rejoice in this following beatitude that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray.